Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. The show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desks. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at aspirus.co, A-S-P-I-R-U-S dot C-O, and linkshus.com, where you can sell your products everywhere. Hi, Dave. Hi, Bernard. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thanks for dinner. Yes, you are in my home and in my production studio for the first time. I think you are the first guest sitting right at where I sit because I usually conduct my interviews through Skype for Analyze Asia. So, Dave, what brings you to Singapore? Well, after the Tech in Asia Tokyo conference, the whole Tech in Asia Japan team is in Singapore for some planning and team building. And so I'm here for the week. The Tech in Asia Japan conference was a success. I saw the tweets. I saw Ben Horowitz with Hiro Mieda. I saw Omalik. I think you took a very nice picture with him. So tell me what happened. It was fantastic. Yeah, we saw a, a big increase in the number of attendees. And most importantly, we saw a huge increase in the number of booths that exhibited. For instance, last year, we had, I think, around 20 or so international booths. And this year, we had over 50 young startups saying, hey, we want to get into the Japan market and come to Tech in Asia to find out the new partners and new investors. So that was a big highlight for me. And yeah, the stage content was super fun. Talking with Om was just, you learn so much. I wish we could have talked for more than the time we had, but it was a fantastic project. And we're now we're focused on Tech in Asia, Jakarta, 2015. When is that happening? That will be November 11th and 12th. So right around the corner. And also you have a lot of startups that actually pitch during this Tech in Asia Japan conference. How is the Japanese conference in terms of now the new startup ecosystem? Is Are there more startups these days or still the same? I'd say that there's more. And actually, recently, we're starting to see more large checks being cut. Uh, just today, my colleague, JT Quigley, he pointed out a woman's fashion startup that got $9 million from GMO, uh, which is a giant uh, Japan conglomerate, as well as Sequoia. I don't know if this is Sequoia's first investment in Japan, but it definitely caught my eye. And 500 startups announced their Japan fund with someone from DNA Ventures joining them. That's right. So they're definitely pretty bullish on Japan. James Riney, formerly a principal at DNA, also a founder himself. He's now leading 500 startups Japan, and they're going to have a $30 million fund. So that's uh, a lot of cash to invest and then double down, as is the 500 startups way. Mm. There are a lot of very interesting startups, but we want to talk about an interesting company, which is what brings you here. We have spoken about SoftBank. It was a very well-received episode, and we have a couple more requests from my audience to you on some of the interesting Japanese companies. I want to start off with this company because other than SoftBank, the other company that I've been watching out for is Rakuten. And I understand you used to work in Rakuten. That's right. Rakuten gave me my first break in the working force. So I joined in October 2010, and I was there up until I started at Tech in Asia last year in July. The timing of my start date is actually pretty significant because I was in the first class of foreign graduates. Rakuten has two different hiring cycles. For mid-careers, of course, it's every month. But for the new grads, they hire them in April. And that's normally for people who are coming out of Japanese universities, because that's the, the cycle that Japanese universities end on. And then for people from overseas, you know, many people end their university in the summer or spring. And so for us, 
the start date is October 1st. So I was in the very first October class of new grads. When was that? Which year? This was 2010. Uh, 2010 is the same year that they established English as the corporate language. It's also when they made their big investments or acquisitions rather of buy.com in the States and Price Minister in France. These are both e-commerce companies. And how long are you with Rakuten before you join Tech in Asia? I was with Rakuten for just about four years. So October 2010 to the end of June 2014. Today, we're actually going to be talking about the Rakuten group. Okay. But we, we go back a little bit back in time in the early days of Rakuten, mm-hmm. how it started and reached its present state. Maybe the best thing to start off is what was Rakuten originally? I mean, we know the founder, CEO, Hiroshi Mikatani. He's pretty interesting. He write a book called Marketplace 3.0. He is very flamboyant in writing about his experience. And he started this whole thing about getting English as the primary language in a Japanese corporation. I mean, there are other Japanese corporations, but I think he has been very forthright that we need to go international. So how did Rakuten started first and what kind of internet company it was before it reached its present state? I understand that uh, Mikatani was actually a banker before he started. Yeah, so Mickey, as he likes to be called, Mickey started out as a banker. Uh, The way the story goes is his family's all from Western Japan. And so when there was a pretty devastating earthquake, the Kobe earthquake back in the mid 90s, it helped him kind of reevaluate what he was doing with his life. He was already very successful. He was on management track in his banking career. He had graduated from Harvard Business School and he could have been a very, very successful salaryman. But the earthquake happened and it made him reevaluate what he was doing with his life. And so he decided he would take the plunge and become an entrepreneur. And so this was back in 1997. And he started a e-commerce website. And this was very, very bold. In Japan, even now, there's a very large emphasis placed on face-to-face communication and the idea that you really know the person who you're doing business with. And so the idea of having an online store where you can't actually see the seller, you can't interact with them directly was, I would say, probably very risky. But he really believed in the potential of the internet. And so that's how the company started uh, as an e-commerce site. And that's really what it's still known best as today. Basically, any retail store can create an e-commerce website with Rakuten, for example. Yeah, so Rakuten, uh, it does charge a monthly fee for having your online presence. And you can sign up. There are different tiered plans that depends on how much advertising you have or uh, how much uh, memory you have, things of that nature. And you can also get your own e-commerce consultant. These folks are basically like real life consultants. They will guide you through all aspects of getting your business up to snuff. And that's where a lot of the money of the company comes from. Interesting. I follow a couple of very interesting Japanese retail, particularly in the secondhand luxury goods. I think one of the most well-known brands is Brandoff. And they don't have a digital presence except in Rakuten. So that tells a lot about what Rakuten as a digital storefront has been for for the e-commerce space. Yeah, so what, since 97, it, it's been 18 years. Uh, the company has really grown by leaps and bounds. And your mention of Brandoff is, is a good one. It's not just mom and pop shops. Mm. They have a ton of major brands lined up. And I was looking through the stats just before we got on the call, and I saw that it has 100 million people with a Rock 10 membership. And it does have a variety of other services, but 100 million people are in the Rock 10 group as customers. The Japanese population 
is 127 million people. <laughs> so I, I did the numbers a little bit, and that translates into 78%, 100 million to 78% of the population. And then if you take it a step further, you can look and see that for the population of Japan over the age of 24, that's 77% of the entire population. Now, of course, you're going to have some people who are a bit older who probably don't have mobile phones, don't use a Roxanne account. And the 24 number, that comes just from the government statistics. The cohort is 15 to 24 and then 24 up into your 30s. And so you can assume that there are definitely people younger than 24 who have the card uh, or sorry, who have membership. But ultimately, this is painting a picture that almost every single Internet capable person in Japan is connected to the Rockton group in some way. Correct. So Rakuten, the website we talk about, now we talk about the Rakuten group because the Rakuten group is much, much bigger on that. I think they started their IPO in the year 2000 yeah. and then they created the Rakuten group. So there are a couple of major milestones that I went to their website. They actually talk about the, these are the major milestones and so maybe I want to sort of get your gauge to it and then through that we tease out a little bit more about Rakuten as a whole. So after the IPO and expansion of the Rakuten group, they expanded, they actually scaled their operations by acquiring businesses. So they have ventured beyond their marketplace model. So a couple of them, they took out a company called DLJ Direct SFG Securities, which is a financial company. And then they also introduced a scheme called Superpoints. And then they acquire Azora Card uh, limited and also link share so in all these acquisitions what was rakuten doing after it ipo'd and started creating a, con a conglomerate within yeah so this expansion this is the key to how they have almost the entire internet population of japan in their service because that 100 million refers to everyone in the rakuten group and so when you start out uh, you're looking back in 2003 three years after their ipo they acquire a travel company this becomes rakuten travel they acquire a securities company. This becomes Rockton Securities. 20, 2004, they acquire a credit card company. This becomes Rockton Card. This is how people get into the system. So let's say all you need is a credit card. Fine. You get a Rockton card. But guess what? Remember that thing about super points you mentioned? Mm. Well, by using a Rockton credit card, you get super points. And super points are basically for every 100 yen, which is about $1 that you spend, you get 1 yen, which is, let's say, just for keeping it simple, is one cent. So in reality, it's like a loyalty card for the That's typical the Japanese user. So basically, their touch points is actually more omni-channel than one would think. They're not just very capable in the digital channels, which they're already in, but they started going into physical channels to basically create that ecosystem for the Rakuten group to thrive under. Yeah, I would say that the, the idea of the ecosystem, a lot of companies want to build an ecosystem, but Rakuten has definitely succeeded in doing that in Japan. They just have so many different entrances between travel, e-commerce, securities, card, banking, life insurance. There's so They have so many ways of getting you into their ecosystem. And then they start to have special campaigns where let's say you're using Rockton cards and now you get maybe a certain benefit if you're shopping on Rockton Ichiba. And so another statistic that is interesting that was in their most recently, recently released quarterly report I think was that in 2006, 25% of users were cross-use users, meaning they used more than one Rockton group service. Uh, and if you flash forward to now, you're looking at 60% of people are cross-use users. Mm -hmm. That, I think, is a testament to the benefit that Japanese consumers are seeing in, in using the Rockton ecosystem. Does that mean their integration between the acquisitions they have done are pretty successful? 
So in Japan, definitely. I would say that if you rolled back the clock to 2002, 2003, and you saw this e-commerce company acquiring a securities firm and then a credit card firm, you'd say, what are they doing? You're successful in e-commerce, just stay there. I don't think that the benefits of these acquisitions was really fully revealed until a little bit later. Because if, with any acquisition, you have the passage of ownership, you have the idea of rebranding, getting everyone from the executive team down to the new people coming in all on the same page. It's an, a really, really difficult job assimilating new companies. And so they started doing that back in the early 2000s, and it's been paying dividends now here in uh, in the mid-2010s. And then in the year 2008, actually, that's my first interaction with this company or maybe it's the first time i actually heard of rakuten because of their e-commerce expansions overseas they went to china they went to japan they went to south korea they went to taiwan but it didn't work out what happened so for this one i think that first of all, the korea expansion was very limited I, I if i remember correctly i think it's just a a travel outpost uh rakuten travel branch office uh, and then in China, this one was working for a while, and then ultimately it was a it was a JV, and the two sides uh, ended up just kind of calling it quits. Taiwan is where they've actually had a lot of success. In Taiwan, the office is very strong, and that's actually where they've been able to start to create their own ecosystem. They just got approved for a credit card license in Taiwan, which is a very arduous process. And so now uh, I think Taiwan is poised to be a really strong case study of success overseas. Now, I'm not going to say that everything's they have a perfect record overseas. I think if you flash forward a couple of years and you start to look uh, at what happens after 2010, from 2010 to 2013, holy cow, it's a string of M&As. You have Buy.com in the States, Price Minister in France. Then you have a JV set up in Indonesia. You have an acquisition of an e-commerce site in Brazil, acquisitions in uh, Germany, as well as England, both, again, e-commerce. You have a, a freshly set up, this is a, not an acquisition, just Rockton built an office in Malaysia, uh, as well as Spain in 2012, 2013, Austria as well, 2013. Uh, so you see a huge push uh, to create an international, I guess, e-commerce ecosystem. Uh, and that's where I think the, the execution has fallen short of the desired goal. I think they are actually quite influential in the Southeast Asia space. Because I think Rakuten constitutes as one of the larger logistics delivery. Don't ask me why I know this, but they are actually quite dominant. Because there's a lot of Japanese customers shopping stuff on Rakuten to be shipped out of Japan to the Southeast Asia region. So in logistics, you're saying they're pretty good? They're pretty dominant. I think there is Kuten, there is Taobao. But if you were to look at, say, the top three to top five, they're definitely within those categories for Rakuten Southeast Asia. So they are actually quite significant in terms of their expansion to Southeast Asia, even though they didn't work out in China. I am trying to recall which was the JV. The JV is either with Baidu or Tencent. It's one of the two because they were actually contesting against Alibaba, Taobao. Because, yeah, of the, because of the business model was very close to Taobao, but they were not able to get it, which actually happens to a lot of companies go, doing JVs in China. I mean, the most well-known as Groupon and Tencent. It didn't work out very well. It got crushed, which is also, I recall talking to Josh about Uber and Baidu and I was telling him it's not going to work out because the JVs with Chinese companies just never happened. I have not seen a successful joint venture, even Yahoo and Alibaba, if we can talk <laughs> about that. But coming back, so there is also a couple of significant things that happened in 2010. 
they converted to what is called Englishization, or actually is basically making English as the primary language for Rakuten as a company. And I think you joined at that point in time, so it actually would be very interesting to hear your perspective on on that movement. Yeah, I think this is one of the more interesting challenges that a giant corporation has undergone pretty much anywhere in the world. Obviously, Japan is a monolingual, in many ways, a monocultural nation. And this didn't just rock the boat, it flipped the boat over. <laughs> and so now you're introducing a bunch of folks who don't necessarily speak Japanese or don't speak it well enough to actually do business with a lot of different backgrounds and somehow are supposed to all integrate together. So it's an enormous challenge. It put immense amount of pressure on not just the people who were coming in who maybe weren't used to Japanese culture, also on the Japanese staff themselves. You know, Rakuten doesn't become a gigantic successful corporation because people are taking it easy. Before Englishization started, people were working very hard hours, working very hard to grow the company. And now they have to learn English on top of it. So I would say that it was a very challenging point in a lot of, in a lot of ways. And the organization has been really committed to seeing it through. You know, every year the English, the average English ability of the company goes up. I think cultural awareness and the ability to access new information of staff, both Japanese and non-Japanese goes up. So I think it's a case of an extraordinarily different, difficult pro、uh, project. But I think that he made the right call. As a Japanese company, if you're going to survive and thrive, You need to have that flexibility. You can't just stay domestic. Do you think that this whole process of making English as the primary language is also about signal Rakuten's intention to go global as a company? Well, yeah, because in for any company, I think you see Alibaba doing the same thing. Alibaba is trying to recruit Ivy League graduates. With one caveat, is that they speak Chinese. I think it was the way the article was written a few months ago. Ultimately, smart people are in short supply. That's just a fact of life. You're going to better your chances of creating a globally dominant, long-term, successful company. You can get more and more smart people into your into your firm if you only speak one language, and that language is Japanese, which only 120 million people speak at a native, 127 million people speak at a native level. Then you're really just screwing yourself. So creating the English first narrative, I think, does establish them as a global company and kind of puts people on notice. Hey. Take take a note of us, and I think it's worth noting that afterwards, companies like、uh, Uniqlo followed suit. Fast retailing, the、uh, the parent company of Uniqlo, then made their own all English policy. Oh, is that the case? So Uniqlo, just to help our audience, is that Tadashi Yanai is the currently the richest person in Japan. I think. Yeah, he's done pretty well for himself. Yeah, and I think second is Mas Masamoshi San from SoftBank. So. These are the top two. You have it. So they made a lot of change, and of course, Uniqlo now has expanded、mm -hmm. <laughs> everywhere, right? And you can see Uniqlo stores even in New York, in in Singapore, in all the cities, and they are definitely making a very big, big wave in expanding expansion overseas. But at some point in two thousand eleven, the Rakuten marketplace have actually exceeded one trillion yen in gross transaction volume, and I think they have about thirty eight k online shops. I, I would presume that is eighty twenty, where the top twenty are the top brands in Japan selling things in Raku in the Rakuten store, and I think the some revenue was something like eight point three billion in in there. What else happened 
in that point in time, I think you we talk about. I think there is also a milestone of acquisition of a e-reader company called Kobo. Tell me a little bit about that. So start off with the the one trillion yen gross uh, gross uh, transaction, which in today's FX equals yeah eight point uh, three billion. That was very impressive, or is very impressive, because they they grew that large in what fourteen years, which is very very rapid. But I think that will be the challenge is can they get to ten trillion? Can they really establish themselves as uh, not just dominant in Japan, but dominant everywhere? Because almost at this point, when you get accolades in Japan, it's a little bit, well, of course, you're so dominant. Of course, you're getting these sorts of records. Uh, but can they keep growing? And that's something which I think is the larger question, especially when we look at the number of shops. You said 38,000. Since 2011 through 2015, the number of shops on Rockton has not grown that much. So right now, if I remember correctly, around 40,000, 41,000 shops. And for the past three years, it has hung steady at 40, 41, maybe uh, close to 42,000. So they are plateau in terms of online shops growth. So the only place that they could go is to actually increase the lifetime value of the user, meaning to allow the cross-selling to actually happen more and more. So yeah, you can uh, increase the lifetime value of the user. You can also go deeper into ad sales. Uh, obviously, so one thing they do, they have been able to increase the number of total potential customers. Uh, and so that means that the shops have a larger field that they can try and grab people out of, which makes advertising a little bit more valuable. So that's another way of increasing the uh, the revenue. Because again, to be fair, if you look at their reports year over year, they're maintaining a very brisk growth. The revenue is not exactly slowing down. It's still double digit growth. It's just an issue of the actual shops that has been a bit slower. And then they actually make other acquisitions somewhere in 2013, they made a real big shock. Actually, it happened to the Singapore ecosystem by acquiring a video sharing plus translation site called Viki. And they acquired it at US $200 million. And that was like, you know, the first time a startup in Singapore of such a small size to reach that kind of acquisition price. So what happened to Vicky? I mean, I know Rasmik personally, you know, he must have a windfall after that. But wh- how did Vicky get integrated into Rakutan's plan? Well, yeah, with uh, with Rasmik, the, the founder and, and former CEO of Vicky, he, he's always very adamant to say, we never confirmed the 200 million. I've asked him so many times, so what, what's the real number? Well, you know, David, we can't quite say. <laughs> so the number was given from, well, the all things the then, uh, but now called Recode. That is where the, that number ever floated. Yeah, that's, uh, that is the reported number. It's certainly a very reputable source. So yeah, the thing with Vicky is that, just to also hit on something you mentioned earlier, Vicky is part of a digital content strategy that uh, was also reflected in the acquisition of Kobo, which is uh, basically like a, a Kindle competitor. Uh, and so they acquired Vicky as well. And this was something which the company was very excited about. And if you look at Rasmik's history in the company, he's done really quite well. In any acquisition story, it's always going to be difficult for the acquired founder CEO to really find the right place in the new company because he or she is no longer in charge. It's no longer their baby. And now there are forces and priorities that are different from what they had when they were making the company. Uh, in, in any situation, you're going to have those sorts of tensions. Rasmig has really navigated those well. 
So he is a senior executive officer, which is actually quite hard to do at Rockton, even if you're an acquired CEO. You know, he, he sits in uh, as an observer on board meetings. Uh, he has a level of access to the senior management and the strategy of, of Rockton that very, very few uh, of the other acquired uh, CEOs ha- have, have had. Uh, I think uh, despite all those successful things, I, I think there's a fair question of saying, okay, but where's Rock 10's integration with Vicky? Uh, I think Vicky still exists largely as, I, I think the, the perception of Vicky is that it's an online video site that has great content and people go there for that content. They don't go there thinking, now I can get Rock 10 super points. Mm. Uh, so I, I think that integration is still is still missing. And I, I, I can't say that I know what's going to happen uh, in the future, but same with Kobo. Kobo is a little bit of an easier play because you can say you get Rock 10 super points for the books you buy. But the full-on integration, the way we see with some of the earlier acquisitions back in those early 2000s, has not yet manifested itself the way that uh, you might have expected. There is another acquisition that came in 2014, which is Viber. I think they leave it independent. I think currently the user growth of Fiber has actually exceeded line, but globally, not not the not the Asian numbers. I think Fiber was allowed to grow by itself. So the question mark that everyone have is: we have Line, we have KakaoTalk, we have WeChat in Asia. I mean, forget about Facebook, forget about WhatsApp. Fiber is from Europe, if I'm not wrong. What is the intention then for Rakuten to acquire Fiber? Is it because just that I need a messaging app or have they done much more to that or they're still keeping it intact? So this is where I think you can see hints of a really forward thinking approach. Uh, so let's remember that they acquired Viber for about a billion. I think it was, their, I think it was 900 million. Yeah. yeah, the number is 900 million. So they acquired it for 900 million and two, within the next two weeks, WhatsApp was acquired by Facebook for... 19 billion. So... Rockton wasn't exactly alone in saying, hey, these messaging apps are a good idea. And so it was funny. At the time, we all thought, uh, was that a lot of money for Viber? <laughs> and then you see WhatsApp acquisition say, well, that was a pretty good bargain there. I give you an interesting number to, to think about Facebook's acquisition for WhatsApp. So if you calculate cost per user, it's actually $40. And I will give you a data point 20 years ago when Microsoft acquired Hotmail is exactly the same $40 per user. And that was how they priced the acquisition. Does that mean that in 20 years from now, I'm not going to, I'm going to be really annoyed at friends who still <laughs> use WhatsApp? <laughs> but I, I guess it's, it's the way how we value companies in terms of how we think about this right. 900 million. And then, I mean, it's a sense of perspective. We're talking about a lifetime value of user because not all users are equal. In the messaging apps, of course, the user have a certain lifetime value. I mean, WeChat, the average revenue per user is $1. So I, I guess the question Mark will come is what's Viber's revenue per, average revenue per user, or we call it the APU. So I, I guess the, the question is that actually Viber did better after being acquired Rakuten. I think in the recent days, people are seeing that actually Viber's numbers have gone down. I'm starting to hear people asking me to call them on Viber. So I have to reinstall my Viber app just to talk to them. I think the success of Viber is a little bit debatable. It was a, a huge win for the startup ecosystem, obviously. Big win for the Israeli ecosystem. Talman, the founder CEO, is originally from, from Israel. But I think when we look at Viber, uh, it was acquired in January 2014. So at, at that point, already Line 
had kind of entered the stage, WeChat had entered the stage, and we hadn't seen anyone except for WeChat really start to take messaging apps and turn them into ecosystems, turn them into lifestyle machines. And so Rockton acquiring Viber would seem to scream those possibilities. Can you foresee a situation that Viber is actually not meant for the Asia market, but for the European market? Well, I think it's not an issue of what Viber is meant for. It's an issue of I mean, where the users are. Mm. Most of the users are are, are more in, in Europe, not in Asia. And yes, their numbers have gone up and they have higher uh, total down. I think it's higher total downloads and higher monthly active users. But you have to ask yourself, where where is that value from? Because if you look at the other apps, you can see that they are taking money out of those users a lot more effectively. They take the money at, from stickers. They get people to use Line Pay or WeChat Pay or whatever. Viber doesn't have any of those functions. And its stickers are not exactly worth paying money for, in my humble opinion. And so with Viber, I think it's just a huge question mark of can it be integrated properly? Um, it's been well over a year and the, the evidence is, is quite small. I'll point out something else out to you. Yes, those numbers have all gone up, uh, but there's also a question of at, at what cost? And so Viber's pretty adamant about saying how it doesn't really use marketing and it's been natural organic growth, but there's still an investment in its future. Like those tickers don't make themselves. So if you look at, if you look very closely at Rock 10's quarterly reports, especially the past few quarters, uh, you'll see that the section that covers Viber has these losses that are a, a bit aberrant from before the Viber ac- acquisition. So this is an investment that is still costing Rock 10 money. Uh, and I don't think it has earned that money back yet. That's not to say it can't. Uh, a good example of an investment that took a long time to turn around is Linkshare. Linkshare was acquired in 2005. It's an American company. Uh, basically, it helps publishers find the right affiliate program to get a little bit of advertising money off of. That company took a long time to find its feet, and now it's doing very well. Uh, and it's leading uh, Rockton's American charge. Uh, Rockton is better, is more successful in America for its marketing efforts than its e-commerce efforts. And Linkshare is a big part of that. So, you know, I, I don't want to beat up on, on the acquisition too much. I think it's still a little bit too early, but the early grade is subpar. I think we went through the chronology of Rakuten pretty well in this like one whole portion of the conversation. I think what we wanted to do in chronology because we were trying to actually understand the report and also give our audience a little bit of view of what actually Rakuten is as a company. But I think now we probably will go into a more deep dive into the Rakuten itself, I mean, the first thing is probably the founder. I mean, you gave some very interesting history of Hiroshi Mikitani. Are there any people that are on the wings that we need to know about Rakuten? Or is it that he's such a charismatic person that is all driven around him? I mean, we know like in SoftBank, we think we always think about uh, Masamushi san But in, now, the, in the recent days, we now have Nikesh Arora. And so that there is there is now a second person that, you know, we know about SoftBank. Or maybe there are some other people because I'm not in the Japanese scene, so probably I may not know. But in your view, are there any like key players in Rakuten that is actually worth noticing? Yeah, so you know, no company gets to this height uh, on the strength of one person alone. Uh, I think that uh, it got to this this far definitely in large part due to Mickey's kind of singular ability 
to have a vision executed and drive other people towards that vision. And, you know, talking with him, he, he is a very impressive, very thoughtful man. His supporting cast is a very strong supporting cast of people from outside the organization. Uh, I think when we talked about SoftBank, we said how there were very, there were only a couple of the kind of founding or like early term members who made it all the way up to the directors or like really senior executive management positions. The Rock 10 percentage is a bit higher. So you do see uh, a number more people who were there in those very early days who are still managing executive officers and directors. What we've been seeing recently, however, is a little bit of an influx of new blood. And so, for instance, right now you have this guy, uh, Yasufumi Hirai. He is He started at IBM. Then he was at Cisco for a while, really kind of like a giant in the B2B uh, technical world. Uh, and now he came over to Rakuten. Uh, then you have this guy, Masayuki Hosaka. He was very big in the finance world, and he's now leading Rakuten's financial side. So you do have those sorts of folks who are also uh, involved. And then Rakuten has, has increased its number of outside directors. Uh, I don't think they're household names, but in Japan, they're kind of giants. So you have this guy, Koichi Kusano. He's an outside director. Uh, and he is one of the top people at Nishimura and Asahi, which is, I'm not even sure what the Singaporean equivalent is, but this is... Are the U.S. equivalent, if you have? I'm not even sure what the U.S. equivalent is. <laughs> uh, but basically, it's, uh, depending on who you talk to, uh, it's the top one or top two law firm uh, in, in Japan. You have Jun Murai, who is a, right now a professor at Keio University. He's often considered to be like the father of the internet in Japan, one of the people who brought the internet to, to the country. And then you do have some folks like Youngmi Moon, who's a, uh, a, a female professor at uh, Harvard University. They're still, so they're getting a little bit better at having outside directors. But if we're being pretty honest, there's only, what, two non-Japanese and only one non-male. So it's not quite as... Do you think this is actually a general trend now in Japanese companies trying to get a more diverse board? I mean, I see, I mean, SoftBank has already started this many years back. I think Rakuten is doing something similar. Is this a trend that's going to move forward for other Japanese corporations or is this still going to be as, as what we talk about usually, you know, it's their own friends on the board kind of situation? I do think you're starting to see a little bit of it in, even in the startup world. So certain startups that have started to take uh, center stage, Crowdworks, uh, this is a, as you can probably get from the name, kind of like a crowdsourcing freelancing website. So they uh, have Joy Ito, who's the director of MIT Media Lab. They also brought in a guy named Takehiro Shinozaki, who used to work at Rakuten, and he, he's an he's a outside auditor, I believe. And then you have, so then you have a company called NetApps, which is uh, one of the bright lights in Japan's uh, startup uh, ecosystem. They just went public. And so they have uh, an outside director, uh, Heizo Takenaka. He is one of the former uh, top political heavyweights going back to uh, the Koizumi when he was prime minister back in the, the early 2000s, or sorry, late 90s, early 2000s. And so, yeah, I think you do see this trend um, a little bit more. But it, it, in, in many ways, it's just common sense. Uh, it's good to align yourself with a diverse group of people who can open up a variety of doors and give you the insights and the experience that their you know, illustrious careers have afforded them. I thought it was interesting to, because I went through the, the annual report and I see that they have actually reorganize all these companies that they acquired, that are, they have integrated under three buckets. So the first bucket is the internet services, where you have the e-commerce, you have the travel, you have things like Viki, you know, video services, they are all bundled into the internet services. 
Then there is the second category where they call it the financial services, which is obvious, right? They put your bank, Rakuten Bank, Rakuten Securities, and Rakuten Smart Pay. And then there is the others. So what I haven't we haven't talked about is Rakuten also owns bridal information sites. They own the Tohoku Rakuten Golden Eagles baseball team. And recently they have just also acquired Visal Kobe football team in the JL Football League. Um, I'm not talking about American football. I'm talking about soccer, if you want me to use the US nomenclature. So I guess <laughs> question mark, my first question is, Based on these organizations, I think I, I, had a dif- I had a difficult time trying to understand their financials because we don't know which businesses are actually working and which businesses are burning cash. So is, th- is, it in such, is this structure in such a way that it's meant for that you just see an overall positive growth, but actually what is actually they're doing is they're actually working on a portfolio theory of all their businesses and try to balance that portfolio on that. Yeah, and I think of it the way, say, you organize your Facebook friends. Probably have really good friends, all right friends, and then you have a bunch of others. If people are in your others bucket, they're probably not contributing that much to your life. Uh, and I think that's a way of looking at the Rock 10 structure. Probably the most successful component of the others is the Golden Eagles. So they, that was a brand new team. And in the beginning, as a brand new team, they didn't have much of a fan base. Very difficult to generate revenue. Uh, but they just they actually won the championship back in uh, 2013, I believe. And that was a pretty big moment for that organization because they won it, I think, nine years after they were created, which is really, really impressive. If you look at an American equivalent, the Tampa Bay Devil Rays didn't even make it to the World Series until I think it was like their 11th or 12th year. And then they still haven't actually won the championship. So to go from from zero to championship in nine years definitely has helped juice the, those base of revenue. But others has so many other components. Mostly it's just the very small businesses that haven't yet found the right product market fit. Don't you find that others is all the lifestyle businesses? But I think some of these franchises can actually become very big. Like, I mean, football teams and baseball teams, they earn a lot of money just through merchandising and sponsorships, right? They definitely have the potential, but things like uh, Rock 10 Wedding, or they have so many other small businesses that haven't quite broken through. Basically, if you have a business that broke through, it's in one of the other buckets. It's under internet services. It's under financial services. And you know, there's a reason for that. Those ones are way easier to understand. And so as an analyst, you can say, well, hey, Rockton Bank, Security, and SmartPay, they're all doing great. E-commerce and travel, that's doing pretty well. Let me just be precise here. So the financial services is actually the one that's actually generating the most revenues because uh- all the money is going through the pipes. It's definitely the one that's growing the fastest. Right. And uh, then internet services is kind of a mixed bucket because they have a very strong growth in the e-commerce side and the, uh, the other, and it's a way how they link up their loyalty cards and the affiliates on that. But they also have certain investments that's lumped under that, that we don't know whether it's doing well or bad. So I think to clarify a little bit more, I think internet services is a bit more simple than it appears. It's e-commerce, it's travel, it's the, the other internet services like the global e-commerce websites. You can have things like the financial services, which is definitely just financial services. When we're talking about smaller investments and things of that nature, I believe that it often ends up being grouped under the others. And again, like, you know, we've both looked at at these quarterly reports. Uh, there isn't a company by company uh, yeah, listing. But I think this is a very typical uh, conglomerate structure. Not everybody is very transparent with these numbers as well. I mean, it's a way of trying to make sure the P&I is growing and of course making sure that shareholders will continue to buy the stock of the company on on that. 
There is a very interesting bit that I think we have left out. And that is actually Rakuten's investment in two very big companies in Silicon Valley. One of them is Pinterest. The other one is Lyft. And I know Lyft have just gone onto an alliance with Didi Kwaidi from China. And they have invested in Lyft to fan off Uber. And I think Didi Kwaidi has been investing in the Indian and the Southeast Asia counterpart. So there is a lot of friendship going on at the moment. Everything is kumbaya against Uber. I guess I think the question for me is for Pinterest is obvious because Pinterest is a discovery e-commerce play. They are beginning to now trying to put a buy button on, on their website. And the growth, user growth is actually growing very quickly. I, I forgot the last number that was re- recently floated was I think 100 million users for Pinterest. I think, they are, I think Benedict Evans dropped that number in his tweet as well. So what do you think Rakuten's interest in Pinterest other than the social commerce factor? Are they going to take up more stake or does that eventually lead to some acquisition or are they going to leave Pinterest alone? Like treating Pinterest like, an, like how SoftBank treated Alibaba. Or what would their play in Lyft be as well? So with Pinterest, I believe Pinterest has raised money since that $100 million investment. I think that investment came back in 2013 or or very late 2012. And since that time, Pinterest has had another round. Rockton wasn't involved in that round. So it would seem to be more of a passive investment uh, at this point. Then in Lyft, they did lead this latest one, but Lyft has so much money already pumped into it. Rockton is not the, the top shareholder at this time. So for, for Lyft as well, I guess it remains to be seen what can happen. Obviously, if you look at the taxi war in Japan, Uber uh, is doing okay. Actually, Line Taxi, the numbers haven't been released, but on paper, uh, seems to be doing better because they have a much wider distribution play. So technically speaking, if Lyft comes to Japan with the support of Rockton, that could be a successful partnership. I would say that until we see something actually happen, it's just hearsay and speculation. It would re- It's not a natural fit, though. If you're talking about logistics in Japan, Rockton already kills logistics in Japan. <laughs> they, in, yes. in Tokyo, they can get you a product in like less than 30 minutes. They just started that program a few weeks ago and it made it was pretty big news because Tokyo is a dense city and they can literally guarantee you 30 minutes or less. So the, the relationship with Lyft is, is curious, isn't as uh, easy to understand. When I see Rakuten in terms of getting its acquisition, I can't see a strategy around it. And I think we were having dinner conversation on this just now about that. So I'm going to bring that conversation back up so that it will be fun for the listeners to hear about. Whereas when I see SoftBank, I see a very clear strategy in terms of the way they think about the investment. It's sort of making like a 10-year horizon. Like if you think in terms of how they invested in Ola, Didi Kwaidi, and Grab Taxi. Yes, they're going for the taxi battle, but I think they are also doing robotics. What is the eventual end game of all these taxi cabs? Self-driving cars. So you can imagine a situation of Pepper becoming the robot that drives the self-driving car. And with Foxconn, of course, I'm being very quite speculative here, but at least you can see a very clear strategy in the way how SoftBank thinks about its business and how it deal with his investments. In terms of when I see Rakuten, I see a mixed bundle of I'm acquiring this piece and this piece and this piece and the horizon is not very long. Seems to be very short. Maybe maybe I don't observe it. I think you brought up a very good point about the acquisition of Kobo. So maybe can you just tell me a little bit about what you think? Because 
I, I, I think it's a group thing to say one thing, but sometimes it's here, better to hear another perspective in what you think. Yeah, so definitely, I think that SoftBank does prove an interesting counterpoint, this idea that it has its investment strategy under control, it's moving in a, a unified direction. And there's certainly a lot of signs that suggest that. In some ways, I think SoftBank is also short term, though. The idea of Pepper driving around the streets of Jakarta is a very far in the future idea. Uh, but it is conceivable that within five years, the taxi apps will be consolidated and that will be a very, very powerful, very successful company that SoftBank will probably have a very nice amount of shares in. So to me, that play is still short term. When you talk about Rockton, I think it's it's similar. I, I, I would agree that uh, it's hard to see the 20-year vision. But so Rockton is all about trying to improve its e-commerce standing, improve its uh, ecosystem standing. So the acquisitions that it makes are with that in mind. If you go back to the early 2000s, hey, how do we get more people to buy things online? We give them a credit card. How do we make it easier for people to get a credit card? We give them a bank. You know, these are things that automatically help their ecosystem. So the Pinterest uh, investment definitely makes sense from that perspective. And I think what we've just seen is that it's extremely, extremely hard to export a shop front style e-commerce ecosystem overseas. I think Rockton and I think the company itself is pretty honest about the fact that things haven't gone as smoothly as they wanted it to. Uh, you can even look at Alibaba. Alibaba had a big splash uh, in America and there was a lot of uh, thought pieces and, and articles saying, oh, Alibaba's in America now. Uh, who knows what can happen? And I think I heard that they sold off that entity. So the idea of getting people who are not in your home country to trust the shopfront system, I think is is extremely difficult. And what Rockton tries to do now is just find other ways of bringing people in. So you look at something like a Viber, that's another way of bringing people in. You look at Wuwaki, which is uh, similar to like a Netflix model that's in Spain, and they've now uh, successfully expanded it from Spain into Britain. Uh, then you look at something like Vicky. Vicky, again, is at the very least a good entrance point because it's, like it has media literally from all over the world. And that's a great way of introducing someone into the Rockton system. Whether or not you can get them to start having cross-use, that's the challenge. But I think that their M&A strategy is mostly geared towards expanding their ecosystem. And yeah, it, it, I don't know that it's a 20-year plan that's being executed right now, but I think the goal is to expand the ecosystem. I, I think it's all speculative, even for my part. Okay, I, I, I think you, you, you made a very good point in terms of thinking that they are actually doing this in a more pragmatic way and they are actually diversifying their portfolio. You can actually think of Rakuten becoming a conglomerate, actually having different services because they've already exhausted the ecosystem. One more question just before I ask you the, our last question. So do you think Rakuten is going to be there to stay for the, another few decades? Do you think that this company actually is going to be there for the longest time? So I think the company will definitely exist and its influence in the political arena has become quite strong recently uh, as it leads the uh, Japan Association of New Economy. I think that with any tech company, you want to ask yourself, will we be innovating in 10 years? Will we be inspiring the best and brightest to join us? And so it's, it's a really hard crown to maintain. Uh, Google's maintained it for quite some time. And I think their recent restructuring is going to help keep them getting the best new grads and people who don't just want to do ad sales for the first year out of college. I, I think that Rock 10 has to prove that. 
uh, it can be this place of innovation for 10 years in the future. If it can, then yes, it'll still be a major player in the tech world. If it can't, then it will be like, say, a Sony or a Toshiba, where the company is very powerful, very successful. You can never take any of those accomplishments away from it, but it's no longer the exciting company that it once was. Uh, so I, I think that's the future that the company uh, needs to fight against. Good that you mentioned about tech companies' life cycle. I was talking to a very interesting investor in public companies, and he made this really interesting point about some of these investments done in the private equity space. And he mentioned that if you look at a lot of companies that are non-tech, they survive for a longer period of time. But tech companies as a whole has never have on have an average lifespan about 15 to 20 years. And you can see that happened to IBM. They almost died and then they re revived. You are seeing it happening now to Microsoft after 20 years of dominance. And as what you've just rightfully mentioned, Google itself. Do you think that it is just a natural evolution that these companies actually go towards a conglomeration like Sony, for example? I know that Sony's financial services is actually their current lifeblood of the company. Do you think that they will end up going into these traditional services and just become some sort of, they are a force to be reckoned with, even like something like Nokia, which the smartphone business is gone, but they're still a very big networking equipment business. I think that any CEO, their first responsibility is to keep their company strong. And so the, the lessons of your early days as a founder never change. It's about product market fit. It's about doubling down on things that are working. If for whatever reason you've lost your tech mojo, uh, but you're able to still make some sort of product that people love, you're going to go to that product. And if that ends up being your fate, I think it's actually a, a good philosophical question for us to ask ourselves, is that company a failure? Or did they find a way to survive? I think that some people would say, yes, it's a failure. It's no longer this bright, exciting tech company. I don't know. I, I, I'm a little bit different-minded on that. I think that it might not be the future of tech, but I think it's a company and a management team that learned how to survive. Uh, and if they're providing a good place of work and uh, treating their employees favorably and having some sort of benefit to society then they should be applauded. And that leaves to be said, of course, but I think we have talked for quite a long time. So maybe the first last question I probably ask is always, Dave, where do my audience find you? Oh, yes. So they can find me on Twitter at CorbinDB. And I don't write for Tech in Asia as much anymore, uh, but you can definitely find me at Tech in Asia conferences. Uh, what I do now is I, I plan the stage content as well as uh, help out select the people who will pitch in our arena top 10 battle. So more or less, if you want to get a speaking slot or if you want your startup to be uh, featured in Tech in Asia and Bootstrap Alley or in the pitch competition, do send me a line uh, on Twitter, uh, CorbinDB, or you can just send me an email, david at techinasia.com. And actually, I have a couple more requests from various audience that maybe we should talk about Docomo, KDDI, and da-da-da-da-da, but that will be another day. You can find me at bleongcw or at bernardleong.com or subscribe to us at our Twitter, Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia, or basically listen to our podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Please leave a rating. We always hope to get five star. And if it's one star, also drop your feedback as well. Once again, David, well, it's great to have you here on my studio. Yes. So, yep, I will look forward to catch up with you again. Thanks for having me, Bernard.